forced on us, sadly, by people who say they're studying Scripture. Standing Against Spiritual Intimidation This is Program 52 in the series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Produced by Global Radio Ministries and Jaron Ministries International. Written and taught by Dr. James M. Cece. In the first four programs in this section, Dr. Cece unfolded the first two means of intimidation of Christians, legalism and mysticism. Legalism maintains that a Christian must have faith in Christ and add man-made rules to have true spirituality. This is patently false. Colossians 2.16 and 17 says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Mysticism preaches that a Christian must have faith in Christ and add subjective experience to have true spirituality. Again, this is not based in the truth of Scripture. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. Now Dr. Cece will explain, standing against those who intimidate through asceticism. Well, good morning, beloved. Welcome to this, our second morning worship service here at Campus Bible Church in Fresno. And as we always love to do, we want to also be praying for and acknowledge our other audiences not only our radio audience, but also our listening audiences in as far away places as the Ukraine and the Czech Republic and Poland and also way over to New Zealand and other parts of Asia as well. So Lord bless you all this morning. We want to invite you to take out your Bibles and look at the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We'll turn this down a little bit, please. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And to take out those study outlines that we provided for you. And if by chance you're listening on our podcast, you can simply download those at campusbiblechurch.com and uh, follow along on those outlines as well. I don't think it's a surprise if I were to tell you that I love learning things. I love learning new things. You know, I only wish I had that same passion to learn when I was in junior high and high school. College. Oh, what an amazing life that would have been. Just this last week, I was studying about whirlpools. I had never studied whirlpools. I'm not talking about washing machines. I'm talking about those swirling bodies of water that are produced by the meeting of opposing currents. You know, when you flush a toilet, when you put water down a sink and you watch it, go whatever it goes, and then you go to Australia and watch it go the opposite direction. It's called a vortex when it has a downdraft. But here's what I was studying about, is that here in the Western Hemisphere, we have the, one of the largest tidal whirlpools in the world. It's in the Western Hemisphere. It's located, located off the southwestern shore of New Brunswick, Canada, across from Eastport, Maine. And they call it Old Sow because when the water goes down, it snorts like a pig. 
So you get this throaty sound. I won't imitate that. But you can't tell, but that is 250 feet across. That's three quarters of a football field. And it sucks small boats into it. Just down they go. Can you imagine? In fact, in the words of one fisherman, he said this, I didn't mind so much being caught in it, but I did resent having to row uphill to get out. An amazing thing when you look at that. Well, here in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 16 to 23, the Apostle Paul is warning his fellow Christians of the changing theological tide, the whirlpool of false doctrine, the vortex of man-made religion that is sucking in believers, and not only did it in the first century, not only in the Middle Ages, it's doing so even today. I want to welcome you back to our mini-series entitled Standing Against Spiritual Intimidation. I could have called it fighting against being sucked into the whirlpool of false teaching. But we'll keep our theme of calling us to not be bullied, to not be intimidated, to not be sucked in. And yet too many of us are being sucked in. So Paul comes and he teaches us, and we began in our first week together learning some principles for standing against those who would intimidate us through legalism. It's not a term that he uses, admittedly. It's a term I'm giving it, and other theologians would give it as well. But he's simply saying, don't be bullied into thinking that salvation involves faith in Christ plus a bunch of man-made rules. You know, you have to be baptized. You have to follow these ordinances. You have to follow these sacraments. You have to give to your church. You have to become our church member in order to be saved. Important things of giving of time and talent and treasures, but not as a means of salvation, but as a response to the gracious call of God. Forced on us, sadly, by people who say they're studying Scripture, but twist the Scriptures and then bully us. And Paul would write about that. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says these words, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or even a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Here's what he's saying. Don't let anybody judge your standing before God. Don't let anyone play Holy Spirit in your life. Don't let anyone impose external rules for internal salvation. Those things that are just a mere shadow of real Christianity. But hold on to the fact that your salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, because it is the will of God alone, because that's what the Scriptures alone teach. Don't be bullied. Genuine Christianity involves a life that's filled with Christ and responds to the leading of an indwelling Holy Spirit, not an external code imposed on you by men. And if you're not here in that first week, I encourage you to download that message and listen to it carefully. But then last time in part two, we examined Paul's instructions for standing against those who would intimidate us through mysticism. And again, I admit, Paul did not use that term, and I'm imposing on in the theological statement. But let me tell you what in essence I mean. I'm talking about those who would suggest that it is salvation by faith in Christ plus some ecstatic, external, subjective experience by which you're saved and stay saved. Don't be intimidated. And though some in the church try to pressure us into thinking that if we're going to experience the fullness of the Christian life, we have to cut off the top of our heads. 
We have to let all rational thinking go and let our feelings, our intuitions, and our experience dictate the Word of God, not the Word of God standing alone and standing by itself. And Paul will write about that too. In verse 18 and 19 when he said, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. And I'm not going to review that message, except to tell you that he's saying to you and to me, don't let anybody rob us of our security in Christ. That you and I have the mind of Christ, and we can hold fast to him as our head. That we can hold on to the objective and inspired word of God, not based on how we feel about it. That I don't get to pick and choose, well, I feel like that's not saying what it's saying. I don't want it to say what it's saying, or I feel like it's saying something other than what it's saying, and because I feel it, that's the evidence. So don't let anybody intimidate you to that kind of Christian life. Folks, I, I wish I could be done with this series. Because we've gotten substantially mixed reviews. I'd love to move on to chapter 3. Where Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God to set your mind on things above and not on things in the earth because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life shall appear, you will appear with Him in glory. I, I want to get to that. But Paul's not done. And therefore I can't be done. Because there's a third whirlpool. There's a third vortex. There's a third threat attempting to suck us in. A, a, an intimidating force that you and I need to stand against. And in particular, standing against those who would bully us through asceticism. And once again, I'm giving you a word that theologians would use that Paul did not use. And therefore, it dictates and mandates a definition operationally. I'm talking about those who would intimidate us into thinking that salvation involves faith in Christ plus self-imposed penance, suffering, hardship. And that's why we come to this study together. I want you to read with me now what Paul says about this particular thread in verses 20 to 23. Join me, please. Remain seated. And join me reading out loud. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Spirit of God, it is my prayer that you would give me the wisdom and the grace to be able to communicate clearly to these, your people. But then, Spirit of God, that you would illumine this passage to them, that they might apply it in their specific circumstance. Lord, there is no way... I can spend the hours it would take to even illustrate all the ways that this unfolds. God, I'm trusting you for this. And may your word be that which has the attention in Jesus' name. Amen. So I guess I better begin with a definition. 
what are we talking about when we're talking about the ascetic? Well, remember when we talked about the legalist and we talked about the mystic, we were talking about people who say that faith in Christ is not enough. It's not enough to save you and it's not enough to keep you saved. Uh, that the ascetic believes that if you're going to get saved and stay saved, then you need to engage also in self-inflicted practices of self-denial and suffering. They believe that the truly born-again believer must not only be willing to suffer, but pursue hardship in their lives. As the only way of taking up your cross and following Christ. You buffet the natural cravings of your body, not as a form of godly discipline, listen to me, but as a means of saving grace. You want to get saved and stay saved, you better suffer more, because that's the only way that you're going to imitate Christ. Now look at my big brown eyes for a second, everybody. I am not speaking against the spiritual disciplines. I am not advocating that it's not important for you and I to engage in the practice of prayer and fasting or the sacrificial giving of our time and our talent and our treasures or even the occasional abstinence of the life's pleasures in order to focus your attention on spiritual things. I am not suggesting that. If you take me there, you're taking me to the wrong place. That's the problem with these messages. It's so easy to take me to the wrong place. Paul wants us to be centered on the Word of God because there are extremes on both sides. We all need to be disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's what Paul said. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. But Paul's attack is on the externalism of suffering. It's on the externalism of asceticism instead of the inward discipline of the heart. Of the people who are doing these things as a means of penance with the goal of not only getting saved, but staying saved, of, uh, of gaining God's forgiveness and earning their salvation. And those who would engage in these practices as a means also of impressing others. Kind of suffering for suffering's sake. We all know people like that. Asceticism for asceticism's sake. Not as a form of godly discipline, but to tell the world, look at how sacrificial I am. Look at how spiritual I am. Now before we look at the problem with asceticism today, and it is rampant today, even in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to first look at the problem in the first century. Jesus addressed it. Do you remember in his Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 5-7, through seven, other passages of the Scripture as well, spoke to the crowds and he warned them. And he warned them about those with this false spirituality that they would walk around sounding trumpets da, 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 every time they wanted to go to the temple. They would wear their prayer shawl and they would be marching and so that everybody could see them and they'd have their hands in the air and they'd be shouting out Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Akkad and everybody would go, oh, there's Moshe, look at him, he's praying. And he'd be pulling out his shofar but, you know, he'd... and then when they fasted they would they would take dirt and put it on themselves. So they would just smear themselves with mud and grime. Just, oh man, look at him. Look at old, you know, Avi there. He's, he's, he's fasting. Oh, he looks so terrible. Isn't he spiritual? And Jesus said, you did it so men could be seen, that men would see you, and you got your reward in full. And then he said to us, remember, don't be like them. 
He keeps saying, but you. Everybody say, but you. You don't do these things, you see. You got your reward if you want to be seen by men. Well, here's the Apostle Paul three decades later still dealing with the same problem. Oh, in different forms, but essentially the same problem. The problem of the human heart. See, in the past we learned that the Colossian church, just like many of the first century churches, was being invaded by false teachers who held to a Greek philosophy called dualism. Everybody say dualism. Now, this is not philosophy 101, but understand that this is a rampant philosophy with, with a belief that says anything non-material is good. It's rampant today. You know, that the spiritual is good. You talk to somebody today and they say, oh yeah, I'm spiritual. You ask them whether they're Christian. No, 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 but I'm spiritual. Ooh. You know, everything's spiritual, but everything material is evil. And so when you realize in your mind or think that somehow everything physical is evil, everything material, everything bodily, everything out, everything out there, everything physical is wrong, no matter what, but everything immaterial, spiritual, and all that is good. Well, then the problem comes is that you end up with a problem. you got to choose what to do with the evil, physical, and how to encourage the good, spiritual. So they developed two lifestyles. Lifestyle number one was called libertinism. That said, indulge the body. Let it do what it craves. It's all evil anyway, so anything goes. It, it came to be known as antinomialism and also uh, licentiousness, but it was simply this. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. You know, we have that today. You know, uh, you know, you only go around once in life. You've got to grab all the gusto you can. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. But then the other option was asceticism. That said, no, buffet the body. Uh, beat it up. Keep it under tight control. It's evil. Punish it severely. You know, these are the people who weren't saying, eat, drink, and be merry. They were saying, don't eat. Don't drink and never be merry. So it's the opposite. Eat, drink, and be merry. No. Don't eat. We'll give you the list. Don't drink this. We'll give you the list. And certainly never be happy. Well, those in the Colossian church had taken number two, the latter. Asceticism. They could have just as easily taken the libertinism. There were plenty of other places like the Colossian church, or the Corinthian church that did that and so forth. But listen to what Paul says to this group of people that made the second choice. He said, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? See, they had made up a man-made religion added it to faith in Christ, that required not tasting this, and Paul never gives the list, not touching that, and Paul doesn't give the list, and, and not handling that. Why doesn't he mention it? I don't tell you why, because you and I would be going, Phew. we have our own list. And from other history books, we learn that the early Christians were being told that a life of suffering was to be pursued if you wanted to keep your salvation. And by the way, that whole mentality went on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, look around, you'll see it, even in our midst. In fact, the history of asceticism in history 
is a history of many acts of self-torture and cruel penance. Now, I grew up in a system where I understood what penance is. I had to learn the definitions. But just in case you have not used to using that term, let me give you the operational and technical definition. Penance is an act of self-abasement or self-punishment performed to show sorrow or repentance for sin. It's also a method that some believe is useful to keep sinful urges under control. And when you study church history, you find a history of such practices. For example, Origen, who died in 254 A.D., had himself castrated as a means of controlling his sexual urges. Problem? Didn't work. Another early Christian is said to have spent seven years shackled and suspended by his armpits. In 459 A.D., there was a man by the name of Simeon Stilitzis. He lived for the last 30 years of his life tied by ropes on the top of a pillar. Why? Because he wanted to imitate the suffering of Jesus and earn his salvation and forgiveness. In fact, the historians describe that the ropes embedded in his skin and the worms were eating his flesh. And as the worms came out, he would place the worms back in there. And I quote, he would say to the worms, eat what God has given you. That mentality existed all the way through the Middle Ages. I grew up around the many stories of monks and other medieval divines who buffeted their bodies with whips and chains, who spent inhuman periods of time depriving themselves of food and water, who walked around for years with hundreds of pounds of chains, who slept on beds of nails, who submitted to extreme vows of poverty and celibacy and decades of silence. And that was the religious training I received in my youth. I'm not talking theoretically here. I grew up with the training that these men were elevated to saintly status because of those self-inflicted sufferings. And I remember being nine years old and going home from that training because I wanted to have a personal relationship to God. And I remember on the way home seeing a pile of gravel, sharp gravel, and my heart just wanted to be in tune with God that day. And I knelt on that gravel that dug into my tiny bony knees until I wept. I know that feeling. And I grew up around that system that imposes somehow an external penance that somehow would earn God's grace. But the more I studied the gospel, the good news of grace, the more I came to agree with Martin Luther who began his spiritual journey as a penitential monk who tried to atone for his sin, tried to earn God's pleasure by imposing penance on himself. And on one incident, he's crawling up the Scala Sancta, the, the, the holy stairs that were believed to be the place where Jesus gave his, his uh, statement and, and where Pilate said, Behold the man. They were brought to Rome. They still exist today. That's a modern picture of those old stairs. It's only a mile from the Colosseum. I've been there a couple of times. And halfway up, Martin Luther, looking at his bloodied knees, said, What am I doing? And verses that came to his mind, The just shall live by faith. Say that with me. The just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just 
shall live by works. It doesn't say the just by live by self-imposed suffering. By penance. By absolving and atoning for your own sin. But by faith in the One who was the only atoning power. Faith in the One through whom and by whom we're saved. Amen? And he came to realize that those bloodied knees would do nothing to make him right with God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now you might, well that was then. This is now. And you might be saying, well people don't do that now. Don't try to atone for their sins, really. Show the next picture, please. Because I took that picture. And I don't live in the first century. And I don't live in the 16th century when Martin Luther lived. That's a 21st century picture, folks. People still trying to bloody their way to forgiveness. This world is No, it's not our home. We're just passing through. And don't forget that God has not, no, He hasn't failed or forgotten you. Craving, cause heaven isn't heaven without you. 